Hello, everyone. This is Gerard Robinson uh, talking to you from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. Welcome to another episode of The Learning Curve. Cara is not with me as I was not with her uh, a week or so ago. And of course, we're joined by someone who's always more than willing to come in and join the team. And it's uh, Carrie McDowell. How are you? How are you, Carrie? I'm doing well, Gerard. It's so great to be with you. I was with Kara last week in your absence, and uh, she said to give her best to you and that she hoped you had a great time on a boat in Maine. And I knew that was going to come up. Oh, of course. <laughs> yes, I was on a boat in Maine. I took my first plane ride um, outside of Virginia for the first time since December 2019. And we went to Maine to meet with my boss and our team to talk about strategy and research. And we had an opportunity to ride on a boat and get lobster. But as I have to, have to remind uh, Kara and everyone else, we're doing this for the children. So, you know, we're working hard for the children. That's that's part of the work. And she, no one's buying it, of course, but uh, <laughs> but, we, but we had a good time. But thanks for, uh, uh, you know, sitting in for me. Oh, sure. And of course, Kara's off today, uh, spending some time with her family as their summer vacation begins. So um, glad to have a chance to be with both of you these couple of weeks. And they're on they're doing water sports as well. So I wanted to make sure that I mentioned that for the record. So, <laughs> Carrie, now that you are here, uh, what story uh, caught your attention this week? Yeah, so I was looking at the story from Education Week called More Than One Million Students Didn't Enroll During the Pandemic. Will they come back? Uh, and the, the article, you know, details the fact that there really was this, you know, exodus of students from public schools this uh, academic year that's currently ending. Uh, as many families either delayed um, school entry for pre-K and kindergarten or withdrew their kids uh, for private education, including homeschooling, of course, homeschooling numbers, um, skyrocketing this year, more than doubling from pre-pandemic rates to now over 11% of U.S. K-12 students uh, homeschooling. And this article, you know, looks at this as a real problem and a concern about, you know, will these students return to district schools? And I actually had an article out today at fee.org where I look at it as an opportunity that, you know, this has been a year of uh, parental re-empowerment uh, and much greater support for school choice. And I think parents are realizing that they are back in the driver's seat of their kids' education and have more options available to them than they may have otherwise thought. So uh, I document in my article today that I, I think uh, many of these families won't return. Uh, we see kindergarten enrollment rates down for the coming year in terms of registrations. We see many of the homeschooling families who left this year, left district schools for homeschooling, deciding not to return. Uh, so, you know, certainly some of those families will head back. But I think this pattern of parents choosing alternatives to an assigned district school uh, is here to stay. And I'm so glad that you made the point about opportunity and not just something as a challenge. You know, the bureaucratic mindset will often see an opportunity and call it a problem because it means we have to change the way we think. And you rightfully said, no, this is an opportunity for a million plus people for us to basically make a case that not only is homeschooling surely one option, but they've been taking advantage of it. And the number of families that I know who for the most part were lukewarm on the choice, public or private, who all of a sudden this year reached out to me and said, hey, 
let's talk about choice and what it really looks like. I mean, oh, now that when it's when it's your children or your child, now it's a big issue. Here's a follow-up question for you because you're you know you have your thumb on the pulse uh, of this of this issue. What are some of the families saying as it relates to financial support, either state, local, or federal? Uh, to support their initiative, or are some families saying, independent of that, we're going to move forward uh, either through a co-op option or through something else? Well, I mean, I think we've definitely seen, you know, increased support for school choice policies and legislation that that puts taxpayer funding of education back and to the hands of families as opposed to funding bureaucratic school systems. And, and I think a lot of parents appreciate that and taxpayers more generally appreciate that, particularly in light of uh, shuttered schools over the past year that were still continuing to be fully funded. Uh, so there is that piece. But I think, you know, a lot of families are um, just eager for the freedom to uh, choose different education options. We saw, of course, this year, pandemic pods, these learning Mm -hmm. pods that emerged. Mm -hmm. And several states are starting to introduce legislation to protect these pods from government regulation and government overreach. In some ways, it's just parents saying, you know, let us gather voluntarily with other, uh, you know, community members and and come together to, to create a customized education for children. And, uh, you know, we don't need you looking over our shoulder. So I think even uh, beyond funding is is just the freedom to choose different education options. Well, thank you for the work that you do on that subject, but the broader subject of ed- uh, educational opportunity across the board. So my story is similar in terms of a freedom theme, and it's from CNN Politics, and it's written by Annie Grayer and Daniela Diaz, and the title is Congress Passes Bill Making Juneteenth a Federal Holiday. And so the Senate unanimously passed the legislation on Tuesday, and the House passed the bill 415 to 14. There were four Republicans who voted against it. And when we look at the sponsors, it's it's definitely bipartisan and, of course, a big focus on Texas. Um, You had Representative Sheila Lee Jackson, uh, African-American lawmaker from the Houston area. Senator John Cornyn from Texas, uh, white conservative, uh, who said we're going to make sure this gets across the mark. And so it passed. Uh, A number of people in the public sector, including schools, were off school or didn't have to go to work on Friday. We celebrated here as well um, at UVA and at the foundation where I work. As some people may know, it was on June 19, 1865, when Major General Gordon Granger announced to people in Galveston, Texas, uh, the end of slavery in accordance to the 1863 Emancipation Proclamation. Now, initially, someone's going to say, wait a minute, that was two and a half years earlier. Well, actually, uh, while it may have been announced, uh, it took much longer, of course, for it to work its way into Texas. And so when you look at uh, Juneteenth, some call it uh, Freedom Day, some call it Jubilee Day, it's really a symbolic holiday, not symbolic in a bad way, to basically acknowledge there was one state where some of the enslavers had still continued to keep uh, African people enslaved. And when this was marked as, nope, this is it, we're here to inform you that it's over, it became a national push. Uh, Texas, in fact, became the first state to make it an official holiday on January 1st, 1980. Uh, all states except South Dakota uh, have made it a holiday. And on June 17th, um, 
Congress made it a an official holiday, making it the 11th federal holiday uh, that is sponsored and the first holiday to be added to the federal holiday list since the recognition of uh, the day for Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday in 1983. Well, as you said, uh, sort of a long time coming. Other states had certainly recognized and celebrated Juneteenth before, and it's high time that Juneteenth is a national holiday. So I think it is a victory for uh, celebrating freedom. Welcome back to the Learning Curve podcast. We are so thrilled to have Naomi Schaefer-Riley joining us for this interview section of our podcast today. Naomi Schaefer-Riley is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, focusing on issues regarding child welfare, as well as a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. She also writes about parenting, higher education, religion, philanthropy, and culture, she is a former columnist for the New York Post and a, and a former Wall Street Journal editor and writer, as well as the author of six books, including Be the Parent, Stop Banning Seesaws, and Start Banning Snapchat, that came out in 2018. Her book, Till Faith Do Us Part, How Interfaith Marriage is Transforming America, came out in 2013 and was named an editor's pick by the New York Times Book Review. Ms. Riley's writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the LA Times, and the Washington Post, among other publications. She appears regularly on Fox News and Fox Business and CNBC. She has also appeared on Q&A with Brian Lamb, as well as the Today Show. She graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University in English and government. And again, so glad that you're with us today, Naomi. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. So in 2018, you authored the book, Be the Parent, Stop Banning Seesaws and Start Banning Snapchat, uh, about how excessive technology negatively impacts children's intellectual, social, and even moral development. Would you share with our listeners the main insights and findings of this important book? Sure. Well, the uh, the impetus for the book was, I mean, I'm a, I'm a parent of three children now. Uh, uh, they're 14, 12, and about to turn nine. Um, and I started thinking about this topic when my oldest was probably two, uh, and I was around a lot of parents who were handing their kids, um, you know, phones or iPads or um, just putting them in front of screens, uh, you know, anytime they're, you know, they needed a few minutes. Um, and I just started kind of wondering about the effects of this, and I ended up interviewing for the book a lot of experts in this field. Um, you know, I would say that um, I think the most important thing uh, is that there's so much that is being lost um, because of the time uh, that people are spending in front of screens. Um, I really think that, you know, kids are missing out on time outside. They're missing out on time with their peers. Um, they're missing out on reading. And I think you really saw that um, kind of come to a kind of horrible fruition this year with the pandemic. Um, even parents who were normally kind of more um, aware of the amount of screen time that was happening just kind of threw their hands up. And I, um, I, I kind of said at some point, you know, like you, this cannot, we cannot continue just thinking of this as an emergency for the next year or 15 months. Um, I mean, obviously I'm sympathetic to, to parents who didn't have any alternative.
alternatives. But I think a lot of parents just were being driven up a wall, you know, by having a kid around all the time. And unfortunately, I think that we're not teaching kids um, the ways that they need to engage in, in other senses that, um, you know, we're not teaching them like how to be alone with their thoughts, how to be bored, um, how to just sit on a couch and, and read a book and enjoy it, you know, without all the distractions. Um, and so the book is really kind of an attempt to look at some of the research about, um, you know, the, I think the intellectual interference that's going on, definitely a lot of the lack of, um, of social skills uh, that are coming out of too much screen time. Um, and just kind of a, a general problem with, you know, stunted development that I think is happening um, as a result of, of too much time staring at phones and iPads. Right. And you're absolutely right that this year, um, really, you know, by necessity, of course, technology and, and uh, screen time for kids uh, has become prominent. Uh, you and other authors um, talk about this in the past. I know that uh Jean Twenge wrote an Atlantic article in 2017, have smartphones destroyed a generation that sounded alarms on screen time and on schooling and pick us up, picks up a lot of your themes as well, or you pick up a lot of themes in there. Um, and now, of course, this past year has been inundated with screens. What advice do you have for parents as we kind of return to some sense of normalcy this summer and into the next academic year? to uh, dial down a little bit of the uh, technology overuse that's been occurring over the past uh, 15 months. Yeah, so I wrote a piece recently for the Deseret News uh, where I in encourage parents to think of this as, as in the summer to embrace your inner free-range parent. And I know a lot of people are familiar with that phrase, but basically means kind of giving your kids a longer leash. Um, and I think in this context, it means like don't follow them around with masks and sanitize her all the time, but also like make sure that they're not just sitting on your couch. Um, I mean, I think there was a lot of a sense of like, I have to keep my kid inside this house and protected and make sure that they don't see any want or touch anything. Um, but now that we're in the grand new world of vaccinated America, I really encourage parents to just send their kids outside, to send them to camp, um, to send them even to sleepover camp, um, you know, which is something where I think it gives the kids a lot more independence um, to make some decisions on their own for once um, and to really kind of to disconnect as much as possible. Um, and, and I think that that should be true going forward in the school year, too. I spend some time in the book talking about the research on um, educational technology. And I think parents need to be much more aware, especially as we're kind of coming. And, and frankly, I think actually there was a real um, education for parents this year where they understood um, just how little in some sense technology can really um, create a good education. I mean, it wasn't just Zoom, but just um, how the the tech technology has kind of been um, this, you know, people think of it as this panacea to like help their kids move ahead. And you have for years, all these districts kind of competing to see like who can give out the most iPads and who has the fanciest technology. And, and the research really isn't there demonstrating that it does anything except frankly, distract kids from learning, um, especially younger kids. And so I would really encourage parents to use this fall to start asking themselves like the question from scratch, like, let's think about 
education without technology. Now, what should we add back in that will actually prove useful? And, and ask questions to the school principal and to the teacher and to the school board. Why is this technology in the classroom? Like, what is the justification? What do you think it will accomplish? And then ask, like, has it accomplished that? Because I think for too many families and um, teachers, you know, this has just sort of become this shiny toy and nobody ever asks, like, what is the real effect on education? It's really fascinating, this idea that we we have this opportunity to do a reset in terms of technology, right? Thinking about this coming fall and, and starting from scratch in some ways and thinking about what is useful with technology and what should we be uh, maybe filtering out. Um, you know, this brings up sort of another question I'm curious about your response to, um, you know, you're suggesting you know, banning Snapchat, for example, for kids or limiting uh, technology use. And I'm curious, um, there's a Temple University psychology professor, Jordan Shapiro, who wrote the book, The New Childhood, um, Raising Kids to Thrive in a Connected World. And he sort of argues that instead of limiting children's technology use in their younger years or waiting until adolescence, that in fact, it might be more valuable to introduce these kinds of technologies and especially social media to younger children when we have, we as parents have more influence over uh, how they use it and things to watch out for as opposed to waiting. So I'm just curious if, what your response is to that argument. So I reviewed Jordan Shapiro's book for the Wall Street Journal. I gave pretty bad review, I'm, I'm sorry to say. Um, and and I, I will say, like, for those of you who are interested in his research, like, what the most striking thing about the book is how thin it is on research. I mean, he, he sort of talks about his own personal experience with his sons, and um, he talks about, you know, philosophy, and, and there's a lot of just made-up stuff. There are very few footnotes, and there's very little understanding of what the studies are out there on this. Um, I, I, of course, don't have a problem uh, with, you know, saying, you know, of course, we need to teach kids how to use it. And we shouldn't just, um, you know, say like, oh, you can't have it, can't have it, can't have it. And then suddenly say like, you know, here, here's everything. But I am a big fan of things like, you know, wait until eighth, which is a program that just says, don't give your kids a smartphone before eighth grade. And, and the reason for that is because it gives kids the time to develop the habits and the temperaments and the tastes to understand like how enjoyable it is sometimes to live without technology. Like I'm old enough to remember a time when I could read a book without a phone in my hand. And I can still, if I want to create that environment and create that opportunity for myself, I can say I'm putting this away. But once you've sort of grown up with that constant distraction, I think it's really hard for you to understand the pleasure that you could get from that or how it's affecting your ability to think. I mean, so many adults, like, you know, Alan Jacobs is one, um, but there are a lot of adults who have just written recently about how their, their own ability, even people who are college professors, their own ability to, like, concentrate on long text to read entire books has been so affected by these um, screens in our hands. And so when you think about that for someone who's like 50, imagine the effect on someone who's 10 who already doesn't have a particularly long attention span. So I think we definitely need to train our kids, you know, to understand the role of technology. And I don't think we should go from zero to 60, you know, with no in between. I just think we should put off um, the, the constant presence of technology in their lives for as long as possible um, so they can do all these other things and understand what it's like to be able to do them without technology. Hello, Naomi. This is Gerard. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. 
So glad you mentioned Alan Jacobs. Um, I'm actually at the uh, Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture here in Charlottesville, which is affiliated with UVA, and he's one of our fellows. So uh, I will let him know you gave him a shout out. He's doing some <laughs> great work in this area. So yeah. let me take you to the area of uh, really of, of uh, education in America. So you've written a lot about the relationship between religion and education in American society. And in higher ed, you know, which is really the enemy of the world, we have a wide variety of college choices, some of them which are, in fact, religious schools. What are the lessons from higher ed uh, and how they handle it or mishandle religion on campus that K-12 education policymakers can learn from? So, I mean, one of the things that's great about higher education is, of course, the diversity of it. I mean, there's so many, there's a college for everyone and everything. I mean, I remember when I first, uh, I wrote a book called God in the Quad, which is about religious colleges in America. And I started researching for that book um, more than 20 years ago now. And um, the reason I got into it was that I had heard about two religious colleges that were just opening up. And I remember my first thought was, there are so many colleges in this country. Why would you open up another one? Like, is there really not something out there that suits your needs? Um, but I think the lesson that I got from just visiting two dozen of them for that book and just um, the research I've done on higher education ever since is that, you know, everybody has like a slightly different understanding of what higher education should look like. And so um, I, I think that, you know, there is a, the, because of course, you know, higher education, um, even, even when it's public, there's a lot of diversity to it. Um, but because there are so many private options, I think that there are all sorts of different models. Um, I think, unfortunately, like public education in this country in the K-12 level um, is not as diverse as it should be. And there, you know, people don't um, we haven't embraced school choice on the K-12 level in the same way that we've embraced it at the higher education level. And I think that's been a real detriment, um, the monopoly, of course, that the teachers unions um, have. Um, but I think also, you know, sometimes the, the curriculum are too uniform. Um, and I think you're seeing that now with some of the debate about critical race theory and things like that. Like, does every, you know, idea that, um, you know, every every bad idea or good idea, um, you know, that, that develops in academia or Washington or elite media circles, um, does it then have to go and be adopted by every, um, you know, public education system in America? Um, but that's what you see, like, you know, suddenly someone writes the 1619 curriculum and within a year, you know, dozens upon dozens of school districts all over the country are adopting this, um, you know, without kind of, I think, enough forethought. But I think that there is this kind of just rush to uniformity um, that, I, I don't see quite as much in higher education. Like there's definitely a, um, a spread of bad ideas that you can see there, but because there's so many different, you know, like we're going to have a, uh, I mean, just to give you an example of the colleges I visited for my religious higher education book. I mean, I was at Brigham Young University. I was at Bob Jones. I was at Notre Dame. I was at Yeshiva. Like these are institutions that aside from the fact that they have a religious mission, like have almost nothing in common. Um, and, and, but they're all thriving in their own way. And so um, that's what I would like to see more of, I guess, at the K-12 levels an embrace of the idea of school choice. And on the school choice uh, bandwagon, it's so funny, you know, I lived in Milwaukee and was there to uh, do research on the school choice program. And it was so funny when someone from Marquette, a student or someone, you know, in the area would say, we don't believe that we should use public money to support religious schools. And yet this Marquette <laughs> student is there on the Pell Grant. But, you know, that's another story. 
Yes, exactly. There's, there's different standards. Different standards. And then, of course, I support vouchers in D.C. We shouldn't have it, says the person who went to Georgetown or Catholic yep. U. So a year ago, a professor at Harvard really opened up, uh, I'll say, a firestorm about homeschooling. And she said that, quote, conservative Christians wanting the chance to bring their children up with their values and belief systems and who saw homeschooling as a way to escape from the secular education and public schools. And there was a lot of debate pro and con. What would you, uh, you know, what are your thoughts and insights about why religion uh, and the church and state issue remains such a dividing line in American K-12 education? Well, I guess there are two different questions here. There's a sort of religion state question and then there's a homeschooling question. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wrote about that debate for a specific reason, um, which is that um, I know the professor who, who wrote that. I think generally she's good on issues of child welfare, and that's largely her specialty. What she writes about mostly um, are issues about child maltreatment in America and trying to figure out which kids are most at risk. Um, I don't think that in this particular instance that there is actually a huge problem of people uh, homeschooling their kids in order to hide instances of abuse or neglect. Um, when I look at issues of child maltreatment in this country, what I largely see um, are people who frankly don't have their faculties about them enough to hide anything. Um, I think the government does a pretty bad job of figuring out um, who is abusing or neglecting their children, but most of the people who are doing it, um, often substance abuse is involved and things like that. I mean, the, the cases that you read about in the media, like the, there was a, the Turpin case in Los Angeles where you had these parents who had been, um, you know, technically homeschooling their children, but basically like hiding children chained in their house for, um, I don't know, it must have been more than a decade, maybe more. Um, you know, those are the cases that make headlines, but they're extremely rare. Um, so I don't really think that homeschooling is a huge source of a problem. I would, however, say that if you have a situation where there's been a family that's been credibly um, accused of abuse or neglect, um, and then they decide to pull their children out of school, whether that's a public school or a private school, um, I would be worried about those kids. Like if there's already been a sense that these parents, um, you know, are mistreating their kids and now there no, there's no one else with eyes on them, that's going to be a problem. And I think, you know, you saw a little bit of that this year. Um, you had a real decline in the number of reports of abuse and neglect in this country as a result of kids not actually being in school. And um, there are were some initial signs that that resulted in much more severe cases showing up in emergency rooms because nobody could see the initial signs. Um, you know, teachers are, of course, um, some of the most common reporters. They're mandated reporters, of course, of abuse and neglect of children. And so it was a, I think it was a case where we saw just how important it is, you know, for other people to be able to see kids and to see when there are problems in a family. So anyway, that's sort of why I weighed in on that debate. I think it's, um, you know, there are people who I think are, are blinded by their um, kind of distaste or dislike of, uh, of religious education um, to think that homeschooling is a, is the source of some problem or that it's a real, um, you know, it's, it's a way that kids are not being educated enough. But frankly, when you look at, you know, some of the schools that in this country that, um, you know, <laughs> that are just doing such a terrible job of educating their kids, I hardly think you could point the finger at homeschoolers as being a source of much of this problem. For several decades now, we've seen various efforts on college campuses and the larger society itself using speech codes, political correctness, wokeness, now cancel culture 
to shut down or damage the free exchange of ideas, um, the central principle of a free society. Could you talk a little bit about how these anti-intellectual movements have developed uh, in, from your perspective and why American society continues to struggle with these campaigns to over-regulate speech in ways that undermine the fundamentals of our deliberative democracy? Sure. I mean, I would just say um, I think my own experience is a little bit instructive here. When I was a student at Harvard, I was um, the editor of the conservative newspaper there. And um, I actually did not find that it was an inhospitable atmosphere for conservatives. I found that we actually had the, um, the office across the hall from like the liberal newspaper and we would have arguments with the people there, like, you know, intellectual debates and people would, you know, come talk to me in the dining hall about something that they disagreed about that we wrote. Um, and I actually found it like to be a, you know, an interesting atmosphere. I'm not saying like there were, you know, conservatives everywhere. There were tons of them. Um, but I, I never felt like I was being silenced or mistreated somehow. Um, and I just want to kind of fast forward to maybe it was last year, I got a call from someone um, who was actually thinking of restarting that publication that I was the editor of. And I, it had kind of gone in and out for a number of years, and I hadn't realized that it was like now totally defunct. And um, he told me, he asked me how we recruited writers back then. So I graduated in 1998. And, um, and, he, and I said, you know, well, you know, people just found out that we were a conservative paper and they came to us. And he said that he has gone around asking people who he knows um, are, you know, have conservative sensibilities and asked them if they would be willing to write. And they've literally told him that only they would only do it under a pseudonym. I found that so surprising and so sad that this is the kind of atmosphere that we've created on campus that nobody wants to be associated with even having the wrong idea. I mean, we've gone so far past what I think was political correctness, um, you know, what, whatever you want to call that, um, and that this is the cancel culture, that you don't even want to be associated with a publication that um, even entertains these ideas because you think maybe, I guess, it will affect your job prospects or whether people are willing to speak to you or socialize with you. So, um, you know, I think that that's kind of been the trajectory of the of the speech discussion. And I, you know, I, I, I think that, um, uh, you know, books like The Coddling of the American Mind are very wise about this stuff. Um, I do think that it does have to do with the way we're raising children. Um, there is a kind of, you know, snowflakey element here. And we're not telling people, you know, that that disagreeing with other people um, is not a personal insult. Um, and I and I hear this all the time. I really do think um, my father's a college professor, too. He teaches at Holy Cross, and I hear this from him as well. Um, but I, I one of the, the ideas that I've, I've talked to people about, like, if, you know, if I could redo freshman orientation to kind of fix this problem, you know, I would force people into debating positions that they disagree with, um, you know, just for like three days on end, like, oh, I hear, you know, you're, you're pro-choice, like, oh, I'm going to make you defend, um, you know, uh, abortion restrictions for the next two days or something like that, just to give people a sense to give their like intellect a workout and to stop with the, my feelings are hurt um, with every, uh, every sign of, um, you know, some kind of disagreement. And I think the, the polls are unfortunate in this sense, like I do see signs that, that younger people are, um, you know, believe in something called hate speech and believe that it needs to be banned. And I, I find that very worrisome. Naomi, I know I said that was the, the final question, but I'm, I'm just sure. curious to have a, a follow-up 
related yeah. to that. You, you and I have kids of similar ages. And, you know, I think ahead to what college will be like for them in a few years, you know, what is your sense? Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Where are we going? Um, I think I'm, I, I, I go back and forth. I mean, you know, on the one hand, you want to be like, okay, I'm putting money into the college savings account. And then on the other hand, you're like, why am I doing this? Um, I think that, um, I hope that there will sort of still be some places around that foster this kind of independence of thought, but I, I just see them shrinking and, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit used to this in the sense that because my parents were both academics, they um, were very picky about where I was allowed to go to school. Um, by, and by the way, Harvard was not on that list. Like they had a list of three schools where they had friends and I was allowed to go to those three. And then I transferred after a year at one. Um, but, but I think, you know, parents who care about this stuff are really going to have to dig deep and find out what is really the atmosphere on the school and what, and what are the people that my kid can study with and, and what are the subjects that are still going to be there that are going to be worthwhile studying and where are they going to go where they can really read important things and discuss important ideas um, I mean if you if you have a kid in the humanities like I just think it's going to require so much more work on the part of parents and students to get a good understanding of, of where you can get that education um, you know 10 years from now uh, than it did than you then you had to try 10 years ago well, let's hope that that's the case and that parents can can be discerning and that there are uh, some good choices and, and that maybe cancel culture um, is more tamed by the time our kids get on college campuses. Is canceled, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Naomi, thank you so much for being with us today. If our listeners want to follow your work or get in touch with you, where should they go? So um, I have a website, uh, NaomiRiley.com, and uh, there's a place to contact me through there. And I also put up all of my um, uh, articles up there, too, and there are links to books and things like that as well. Wonderful. Well, again, Naomi Schaefer, Riley, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum and a prolific uh, writer. Thank you again so much for being on The Learning Curve today. Thank you. It was great talking to you. So, Gerard, it's now time for our Tweet of the Week. Uh, I think we're actually going to do a couple today. The one that struck me was by GBH News on June 18th, talking about plans for an online public school for Boston have been scrapped. Virtual school appeared to be an attractive option, particularly among Black and Latino families surveyed by the district. And it's really unfortunate, I think, because, um, you know, certainly there, there were some real limitations uh, to remote schooling this past year. But I hope it doesn't paint online learning itself as um, something that's inferior, because I think for a lot of students, it can be you know, really excellent education choice. Uh, and of course, you know, in the interest of expanding options for families as opposed to limiting them, I think we should be uh, encouraging more of these uh, different methods and approaches to learning, including online school. Great. 
My Tweet of the Week is a little different, and I can say we've had no Tweet of the Week like this. And the reason I'm going to talk about this one is because as Kara decided to out me and uh, try to public shame me for having fun for the children riding the boat in Maine and actually having a chance to see a lot of the, uh, let's say, sea life in that area, uh, a man by the name of Michael Packard, in fact, was in the water and was swallowed by a whale. And his friend Josiah Mayo uh, said that he was in the water, and before you knew it, Michael was engulfed in a whale's mouth. Uh, they were able to get him out of the mouth, and needless to say, he and everyone else was quite shocked. So, having been in a place where there was a lot of interest in whales and, of course, lobsters, this is a story that I don't hear too often, so I had to make it my Tweet of the Week. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you didn't uh, have his same fate while you were uh, in Maine on your boat, that this, uh, that you were safe and sound. Yes. <laughs> it's been great being with you, Gerard. I think uh, I'm, I'm sad not to be here again next week, but it looks like you have a great guest coming up. Yeah, Carrie, you're absolutely right. We've got a great guest next week. Uh, it's going to be David Hackert Fisher. He is a university professor and Earl Warren professor of history emeritus at Brandeis University and the author of numerous books, including Paul Revere's Ride and the Pulitzer Prize winning Washington's Crossing. Although you won't be here next week in person, we know you're always with us in heart, soul, and mind. So thank you again for joining me and for those of you who are listening. Thank you again for joining us for another wonderful session of The Learning Curve. I've learned a lot today and always walk away curious. <music>